The following podcast is a live recording of a radio show first broadcast by Fresh FM with assistance from New Zealand On Air. Fresh FM is a community access media station based in Te Tauihu, the top of the South Island, New Zealand. If you or your group would like to know more about how you can have a program on our station, please contact us. Visit our website freshfm.net for our contact details. What would you do if you knew you were going to die, or that someone you loved was going to die? Well, guess what? You are, and you do. No mai, hari mai, and welcome to Death Walker's Guide to Life, a euphemism-free show that deals with everything about death and dying you wish you knew but were afraid to ask. In it, we'll explore together how thinking and talking about death can help you live a life without regrets. Ko Kerry Sunderland Toku Inua. My name is Kerry Sunderland and I'm the host and producer of the show, which is first broadcast on Fresh FM in Titoihu, the top of Aotearoa, New Zealand's South Island, and then available around the world on many of the major podcast platforms. Deathwalker's Guide to Life is produced with the support of the Tasman District Creative Community Scheme, so big thanks to them. And if you'd like to find out how to get involved or wish to support the show in other ways, please go to the website, which is deathwalkersguidetolife.com. Kia and thank you for joining me for Episode 8 of Season 2 of Deathwalker's Guide to Life. In today's show, I'll be speaking with Mary Garner and Kriska Gould from Nelson Tasman Hospice. But before I korero with Kriska and Mary, it's time for the first bookend, Death in Print. This week, since we'll be finding out more about Nelson Tasman Hospice's Life Stories project, I would like to talk about Finding True Connections, How to Learn and Write About a Family Member's History by Gareth St. John Thomas. The book encourages you to explore your personal history beyond the family tree or a DNA report. It's essentially a guide to finding out more about those family myths and legends that you've always heard a little bit about but didn't really know much more. Or, if your family history is a bit of a blank slate, it provides suggestions about how and where to start documenting the lives of your tupuna or ancestors. This detailed, hands-on manual provides comprehensive guidance and instruction from getting started to the end result. There's also a boxed card set you can buy to use alongside the book. This set includes 100 key questions you can ask someone to prompt them to expand on their life. Both are structured around four key life stages, the early years, childhood and teenage years that is, adulthood, marriage and parenthood, and the retirement years, which St. John Thomas calls the wisdom years, as well as four key areas for contemplation, reflections of self, the cultural world, the future, and leaving advice. Examples of the latter include, what would you like to tell your grandchildren? And is there anything in particular you'd like to tell the President of the United States? And in the book, each question also has follow-up questions. I've used these cards in creative workshops and they double as a great writing prompt you can use, not only for life or memoir writing, but even for fictional character development. The book is also a bit of a DIY kit for aspiring authors and in some ways serves as a sales funnel for Exile's emotional inheritance business. St. John Thomas is the CEO of Exile Publishing, which has been putting out books for about 25 years. Finding True Connections was published in 2019 by Emotional Inheritance, one of Exile's publishing imprints. Emotional Inheritance is essentially a life storytelling service provided by Exile, who sets up a structured interview with an experienced writer who interviews and then transcribes the person's story. 
The result is then published as a limited edition book. You can find out about the book, box set and the life storytelling service on the Exile website. I will include links on the episode 8 webpage on deathwalkersguidetolife.com. Now it's time to welcome my guests on today's show, Kriska Gould and Mary Garner from Nelson Tasman Hospice. Kriska is Volunteer Program Manager, meaning she is the first point of contact and coordinator of the hospice's hundreds, I think nearly 500 volunteers, and Mary is hospice's patient care volunteer coordinator. Together they make some amazing things happen, but today we are going to be talking in particular about the Life Stories Project. So kia ora, Kriska and Mary. Welcome to Deathwalker's Guide to Life. Kia ora. Kia ora. So before we talk about the very good work that Nelson Tasman hospice staff and volunteers do, I'd like to ask you each about your own personal, you know, a significant or perhaps the first personal experience of death and dying. So Kriska, can I ask you that first? Sure. Um, I'll probably go with the more significant um, was my, my dad. He passed away about five years ago. Um, and of course, um, it's always a challenge, no matter what age or when person passes. Um, but the reason why I'm thinking of this situation or this story is because he actually went into a hospice and in the States, I'm from America. Um, but it's the same concept of that, um, philosophy of care and helping, uh, really the family, um, and to have a good death. I mean, that's really the goal. Um, when, what hospice sets forward to really help a family and a patient have. And I know that sounds kind of funny to say a good death, but um, death is challenging. Mm. So that's why it's important. And that's what made me think of my dad's passing. Mm. And in your dad's case, do you think it was as, as much as it could be a good death? And what are the key elements? Just a few, few quick things. Yeah, that actually, um, because unfortunately he had a cardiac arrest and ended up in the hospital and then the doctors kind of came to my mother and my sisters and I and said, there's a lot more challenges that he have, and he'd probably never leave the hospital if we were to go a certain route. My dad was in, had renal disease, so he was um, on kidney machines, on dialysis. And so at the end, the easiest route was um, to stop dialysis mm-hmm. and let him pass as natural as possible. Um, and he knew. He knew right away what was going on without anybody saying anything. Um, and he had some really great uh, time to reminisce with people. Um, actually said some really quite funny things. My dad was quite a jokester, and um, it was a wonderful time for us. So it was a process of a good death. But he was only in hospice care for about um, 24 hours because um, when you stop dialysis, it can go quite quickly. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Well, thank you for sharing that. Mm. And Mary, what would you what comes to mind as your you know either your first or most significant experience? Probably my most significant is when my mum died about four years ago. Um, she had been unwell, and she came onto the hospice program quite late in the experience. She'd been um, she'd been unconscious for a while, and it was an interesting experience for me because. I've worked for hospice for so long and it was interesting to have one of the hospice nurses come into a parent's home and experience from the other side, mm. really, mm. As, it, as it were. Yeah, mm. and it was, it was interesting because I 
having worked in hospice for so long, I thought I would not breeze through it, but but you know have a pretty good handle on what it what it was like, and. Um, to some extent, I suppose I, I knew the mechanics of what was going to happen, but I was still hugely reassured when that nurse turned up. In fact, we had a couple of visits at different times from um, two different hospice nurses. So, yeah, it was interesting to be on the other side of mm. the fence. Mm. You said you have been involved in hospice for a very long time. Can you tell us the story of, of how and why you first got involved? I'd read a book by a woman called Elizabeth Kubler-Ross and and she wrote a book called On Death and Dying and it was quite revolutionary at, in, in its time because nobody talked about it at that point. And I read that book and at the time my mother um, was a hospice nurse so she was one of the first hospice nurses here in Nelson and we'd recently moved down to Nelson and a position came up for a volunteer coordinator, as it was or volunteer manager, it's now called. Um, so I, I applied, really. It, I just liked the concept that, just like we have at the beginning of life, there is now some system of care that's being proposed, as it was then, for the end of life. And that seemed the right thing. And when you joined Nelson Tasman Hospice, was that in its early days of being established here in Oh, absolutely. It only been going a few months when I I joined. So Mm. so you have been part of hospice pretty much since it has existed and operated here. Pretty much, yeah. Yeah. Mm. Well, I I look forward to talking to you more about the wealth of experience (laughs) uh, that you've gained during that time. Chriska, can you tell us how you became involved in Nelson Tasman Hospice and... Yes. Well, um, actually, um, I come from um, the States again, and uh, we just moved back. My husband is a Kiwi. And so I was looking within the area. Um, he he uh, landed a position here, so that brought us to Nelson. Um, and I have an extensive past with the American Heart Association, um, where I worked for them with volunteer management and fundraising, um, and also project management for CPR. Um, so this kind of opened up that realm, and I was looking for something to meet my skill set, my wheelhouse. And um, actually, a uh, funny thing is, I applied for a different position with um, uh, with Nelson Tasman Hospice, and that didn't come to fruition. And they actually called me and said that this position was open. So I'm really glad that that happened that way, um, because uh, I, I really feel that... Um, the volunteer services, our department is very strong with having Mary's uh, strong expertise and me coming on board uh, with having the skill set of volunteer management um, and really working together to make sure that we're really focused on our patient services. Mm-hmm. So, And how many years ago was it? That you um, it has now been about two years, just a little okay. over two years. Yeah. Okay, great, great. So I'm keen to um, just for our listeners, for you to just briefly explain how hospice works and in particular um, what it's not and what because there's a number of misconceptions out there in the community. So just to set the scene for for uh, how hospice operates here. Sure, yeah. absolutely. Um, so hospice, a lot of times people think of hospice um, as a place and really hospice is not a place. We are more in the community. Um, 
our service, if you will, um, is a philosophy of care. Um, it is palliative care. Um, our patients, like monthly, we average about 240 out in the community. And we do service, of course, hence our name, Nelson Tasman, um, all of the Nelson and Tasman area. Um, and our staff, our clinical staff, actually, they go out they go out to see the patients. Um, patients don't really come into our building, and if they do, um, so we have an inpatient unit um, which has 10 beds, and the reason why we have that um, is to bring in a patient that has some complexity that we need to really monitor and help really sort out the situation. Of course, you know, we're not going to prevent anything. It's holistic in that aspect, but we are going to, of course, make them as comfortable. Again, going back to that good death, Mm -hmm. um, as as good as we can make it, as comfortable we can make it with dignity, value, respect for the patient. So we might bring them into the unit so we can monitor them um, and hopefully get them back home. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, ten beds. Um, that's all we are, and that is really the um, trend. That is all hospice. We have thirty-three hospice throughout the country, and that kind of is the concept that they all have because everyone's more happy or more comfortable in their own home. Mm-hmm. I, I, that was going to be my next question, but you've just answered it, so that's wonderful. That. Um, the majority of people, you know, really do want to die at home, don't they? they Surrounded do. by their family and their friends and in a, in a familiar environment. Yeah. And I should add, if they are in the unit, if they're in the inpatient unit and they're close to death, we make them as comfortable as possible. Um, even through the pandemic, families are welcome to come in. And we do have some restrictions, of course. We have to be smart. Um, but, I, again, this is, um, you know, it's really important um, for our patients to have those connections and, and, and be able, because, again, it's the living that has to, to live with the death. It's mm-hmm. not the person dying. But, you know, of course, they want to say their goodbyes and, and, and have those um, tender moments, if you will. Um, so I just wanted to add that because um, I do get questions a lot about um, in the pandemic, can we still come in and visit our loved one or our friend? And, you know, we definitely say absolutely. And another perhaps common misconception out there in the community is that hospice is mainly working with elderly people. But Mary, that in, in your 30-odd years of experience, um, yeah, how diverse is the other range of people that you support? Oh, we would, um, we would accept patients of any age. And the youngest I can ever remember was a baby. And the the oldest is something I goes up to a hundred and something mm-hmm. really, mm. Mm. yeah, mm. yeah. So it is it isn't very yeah. diverse, yeah, mm. yeah. Okay, so um, perhaps Mary again, you could tell us a little bit about how the Life Stories project got started and and how long it's been running and you know your role in in setting it up and getting it going here in Nelson Tasman. Okay, life story writing actually started in New Zealand by a doctor called Ivan Lichter, who was the medical director of Tiamanga Hospice back in the late 1980s, or about eight, yeah, early 80s actually. And he developed it um, as a therapeutic service for patients. And so in Nelson, we, we were one of the earlier hospices to uptake it. Um, we probably, it was probably around 1990, because I remember the first training we ran and two volunteers from Tiamunga Hospice in Wellington came over to do our first training in 
Nelson for our life story writers. Mm-hmm. And what? How did it get started in those early days? Were there, you know, a number of people you were supporting who were put their hand up straight away, or did, were people a little wary about what what, what was involved? Um, it's it's a little similar to it is now, really. Mm-hmm. Um, I just we just ask the nurses um, to determine, you know, if there's any patients who would be appropriate to offer the service mm-hmm. to, and yeah, patients accept or or don't accept. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what what sort of things do you take into account when thinking whether someone would be appropriate to approach? We would, the service really targets people who are perhaps looking back on their life and wondering what it's all been about, or looking back on their life with maybe some regret, or even just as thinking their life hasn't been up to much, maybe. Not even to go as far as regret, perhaps. We would also target people who um, uh, are, are quite anxious, so people with anxiety or people who are unable to do the activities they used to be able to do. Um, and also sometimes people who might want to have the last word, they may, they may have something in their life that they're struggling to come to terms with. We would offer it to those people as well. We would also offer it to people who are having pain issues that um, are part of their life despite the very best efforts of hospice to get totally on top of it because life story writing is a diversional activity. That's the reason we offer it. Mm-hmm. Mm. That's fascinating. And so it's not essentially there as a way of recording someone's story to hand down to the um their gen- you know their descendants it's it's more about helping them in that moment as they're approaching the end of their life to to be comfortable and open about what's happening is that, is that correct yeah that yes i mean that is correct if we don't if if we don't have patients that meet those other sort of general criteria and we have people who are, who are just a bit lonely or have a good story to tell if you like the nurses would you know would say offer it to him and if we have free life story writers we will um, but quite often the nurses you know not so often as they used to but they used to come to me and say oh we've got so and so patient they've had the most wonderful life and they've done the most wonderful things they'd be a really good candidate for life story writing um, and often people who've had really really fulfilling lives and done exciting things um, ha- have all that in their memory anyway mm. So, mm. so that's not our primary reason for offering it. Mm. Um, I think many patients probably think that they're doing it to hand down to their family, but and and they do. I mean, mm-hmm. that's obviously what happens to most life stories. Um, but I do talk to them at the time to say that the re- the, the reason we're doing it is is some yeah, it's a therapeutic the activity, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, first mm. and foremost. Yeah, yeah. So um, I'm not sure who's the best person to answer this, so maybe one of you will just pop up your finger to, to let me know. But So how do you recruit the people to, to, and that are involved in the Life Story Writing Program, the people that are actually recording? And so Matt, um, Mary, yeah? They tend to recruit themselves nowadays. Um, <laughs> I can really only think of once when we were really short of applicants and I approached... 
writing groups, I approached a university women's group, anywhere where I thought people who are likely to be readers or writers might hang out. But in more recent years, people have just come to us and applied to be a volunteer. So I, I guess the service is probably so well known now. And of course, the more volunteers you have in the community who are life story writers talk about what they're doing. So there's more of them, even if they're retired from doing that work. So they have friends. And so, yeah, I think it's become yeah, better known. I think I'd like to add, you know, because um, we are focused on life story writing, but we do have over 40 roles that volunteers can help us out with. Um, and when Mary talked about um, recruiting where, where she had to, um, you don't have to have a background as a journalist or, you know, it, it, it depends on your ability and your affinity for writing. Um, so we do have some volunteers who do life story writing who really don't have that background, mm. um, but just really enjoy this type of volunteer role and have a way of really relating to the patients. Um, and life story writing is first person, so it's all what the patient um, says to them. So it's really... Um, you know, gathering that information and helping it just flow, but you're not changing anything. It's the patient, how they speak, it's first person. Mm. Um, so it's really quite important that you are really just helping them tell their story um, and not changing it in any aspect to, um, I don't know how to say that, but, you know, to, to, to modify editing it. it. Yeah. Editing it. Yeah, mm. edit, mm. editing, editing it. Yes, mm. absolutely. So I, I imagine that a key skill then is to be able to ask quest good questions and maybe we can talk a little bit about some of the questions that get asked in a minute. But the key skill would really be to be a good listener, wouldn't it? Yes, they have to be good. They have to be good listeners and but we do teach some interviewing skills because they have to yeah, the volunteers have to know how to lead that because mm. they have some patients who are very eloquent, they're very articulate, and we have other patients who are not. And I can think of some life stories and it's been almost like, um, what's the expression? Um, pulling teeth. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's been quite difficult. Yeah. And mm. actually there are a few occasions where we have written a life story in the third person Oh. And it's it's okay. it's usually where patients are, are not that articulate. Mm. And yeah, yeah. And and to be able. So when the process of it is that, how, does, how tell us about the process? How many um, sessions are there involved? Does it depend on on the person and their story? Um, how do the life story writers record while they're while they're listening? Are they audio recorded or do they take notes? Could you talk um, about that, Mary? Mostly, uh, mostly they use a, a voice recorder, um, but but more recently the volunteers will use their phones because they've mm. become so good um, devices at recording. So basically, it works that the the volunteer will go once a week, do have a conversation with the patient, go away, t transcribe it, which is takes quite a lot of time. Mm. Um, take the draft back to the patient they'll go through it, make any corrections and then they'll do another conversation and that will go on for uh, uh, many weeks really I've always had a couple of criteria that have to be met for a life story to, to, to be carrying on and one is that the volunteer is getting new information and the other is that the patient is engaged in the process mm -hmm. so they're not doing it for family they're actually engaged in the process mm -hmm. 
and as long as that's carrying on, I I, I think, th- yeah, it can go anything from a couple of weeks to the, think the longest one we ever did was about nine months. Wow. And in terms of the, the output in the way the story is written up, I guess the length varies considerably from person to person yes. as well. So mm. can you talk about perhaps what the shortest life story has been and, and, and maybe what the longest one? Well, the shortest one might have only been a, a couple of pages. Yes. Because, as you can imagine, sometimes the volunteer gets started and the patient becomes ill yeah. and they may hardly have even started and I usually say to them if that's happened I'll ask them how much material they've got and just get them to tidy up what they've got and give it to the family. Mm-hmm. The longest one we ever did which, which was the nine month one the family uh, actually published that into a little book about the size of um, you know those um, Reader's Digest kind of condensed books, <laughs> yes, those ghastly, yeah. you know, like say that, um, um, books. It was about that size, and the family published it into a little hard copy book. Oh, that's mm. wonderful! Did mm. families publish their fa- their loved ones' uh, um, love stories very often? Well, we have, uh, yes, quite often actually. We have a we have a bit of an agreement with Copy Press who do some formatting for us. So we give patients the option of either having one free copy of their life story, which hospice will copy and provide in a ring-bound sort of folder. Um, otherwise, they can go through a printing service and the, the printing service will reformat the cover probably, uh, yeah, a, a little bit smarter than maybe the volunteers because that's their job. Um, and then the patients will pay to have... And some patients, you know, have paid to have 20 copies of their <laughs> life story because they've been so delighted. Oh, that's mm. wonderful. So mm. how many people would go down that um, route and, and get their work published by Copy Press? Um, well, when I say published, they they do the work and they do the formatting and they do the copies, but then the, the patients give them to their families. They're mm. not published in the sense of yes. a public Yes, they're self-published, yes. Um, yeah. Probably quite a few of our patients are doing that nowadays, mm. actually. Do you keep a library of all of the outputs? The um, we keep a copy. Hospice keeps a copy of every life story um, simply because if we get asked by family members, mm-hmm. sometimes years down the line, mm. actually, um, we can always provide it. But we don't read them. They just they just sit there, really, in, in storage. Mm-hmm. Yep. So you talked about the transcribing part being a big part mm-hmm. of the job. Is that um, something that gets covered in the training as well uh, and do, uh, people using special software <laughs> so I'm geeking out on this as a yeah. writer <laughs> how uh, that works yeah <laughs> um, uh, if you've got a, a half hour interview that's about three hours transcribing that roughly give or take um, we looked at yeah in terms of recording we looked at voice recognition software and that doesn't really work because it's, it's a different patient every time um so yeah the volunteer just yeah puts it onto their computer uh as a voice file and um yeah edits it from, mm. from and what there. sort of feedback and do you get from volunteers about whether they how much they enjoy that part of the job compared to the you know the interpersonal re- in communication there are some there are some who like the computer transcribing work a lot less 
but they all pretty well agree that it's important for the person who's doing the interviews to actually do the transcribing because that process of doing the transcribing helps them to yeah take on the mantle of that person it helps them to kind of own the story and and become more familiar with it um you know occasionally we get patients will come forth with a whole bundle of journals that they've handwritten over the years so sometimes I will get um, another volunteer to type them up although even now with Word if you use Word on Microsoft there's a transcription Mm. and you can just read and it will yeah yeah. I mean all that technology that's amazing the technology has is is improved so much in the time I've done it it's been frightening really yeah, it has. And um, I get your point, though, about when transcribing and uh, the the different person whose life story is being told has a different voice, but it's incredible how much your phone learns to transcribe your own voice very, very yes. accurately now. Yes. Yeah, yes. It's, it's quite remarkable. Okay, so um, just coming back to the training program. So I believe, maybe, Chriska, you can talk about sure. the general volunteer training that's coming up and specifically about the life story writing training. Sure. And um, this training, um, we are in the works of splitting it up and having it twice a year, but the moment we are still annually that we do this training, um, it is the 19th through the 21st of September, which is just around the corner. Um, And if if somebody was interested in life story writing or our other roles that are patient-oriented in the community, such as driving or... um, sitting with a patient, which we call family support, to give the caregiver or loved ones a little respite, um, they would have to contact us, um, and we do a little interview, and we do have an application process. We are we do vet our volunteers, um, but this training is um, those four days um, for life story writing and three days for the other um, volunteer roles, just so you know. We have an extra day just for life story writing because, of course, that has its own initiative and has to have um, that time to really focus on that. And I just want to make one point. You said earlier that it'd be really important for the volunteer to have great listening skills. We actually have a whole segment during our training about listening. And we want to make sure our volunteers feel very supported um, being out in the community, again, with that odd 240 patients. Now, not every patient has a life story writer. Um, Again, it really depends on the referrals that we receive from our our clinical team. Um, But with that, we want to make sure that they are independent with that patient, that they have um, the mechanisms in place and the tools that they need. Um, So this three or four day training for life story writers um, come equipped with all those things like listening, family support, um, or I should say um, family dynamics. Um, We have also where we go through um, spirituality. I mean, we really dive into some complex um, topics that really help um, our volunteer in the process of doing this work. And then yearly, we do offer other support meetings. Mary runs those um, to make sure that we're tapping in and making sure that our volunteers are okay. Um, Because, of course, when they're dealing with a patient, they get quite invested in that person to a degree. 
but we do really train our volunteers to be very professional and make sure that they remember kind of what their purpose is um, because, you know, we wouldn't want them to get too involved because they're not that part of that family. You know, again, they're just to help with that service. Mm. Um, so, yeah. So do you run the Life Stories training day, Mary? Yes. Yes, yes I do. Yeah, so in addition to the, the segment on listening, can you tell us a little bit about what else you would cover in that day? Um, the, the Life Story Writing Training is a collaborative event um, involving other experienced life story writers. I may have been doing it for 34 years, but I'm still not out there actually doing life story writing with patients. And I think there's no substitute for other volunteers who are doing it. Um, we cover we cover things like um, that. We do some ethical situations, but we cover things like um, interviewing skills, um, how to operate the equipment, and that's changed over the years. Really, um, we look at formatting. We look at um, things to include and not to include. Um, we look at how to present the finished document. Um, probably the interviewing skills are probably the, the biggest. Yeah, yeah, they're probably the biggest mm. section. And and mm. when with regards to the interview, does it start at the beginning of someone's life? Is that usually where you suggest people start, or do you? No. People, What's the first no, question no, usually? No, no, not at all. It <laughs> yeah. really depends on what the patient wants okay. to write, actually. Yeah, okay. yeah when, I, when I talk to patients, I say they, what they want to write is totally up to them. It can be a whole-of-life epic starting when they were born, or it could be a segment of their life, it could be their working life, it could be their holidays they had overseas, it could be a jaunt around their garden if they've been a great gardener. Or it, it could actually even be letters, which is another, it's slightly another topic, but it is a service we provide for patients as well. So it depends. So patients, that's the wonderful thing about computers nowadays, really, is that patients can start where they like. <laughs> and yeah, and then you can yeah. put it in order or whatever. Yeah, later. I mean, yeah. It, it could be it could be just a series of conversations, and they may not decide what they want to talk about till the actual day. Mm. That's great. Mm. So then the key is, I guess, with the interviewing skills is to be able to listen and then um, come up with questions that keep the conversation or the, the retelling of their lives moving along. Yeah, yeah. And, and to enable it to be the patient's story and not to ask leading questions. Mm. 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 Yes, very important. Mm. <laughs> that's mm. great. Well, that's fantastic. So just, um, Chriska, can you tell people if who are listening out there who do want to get involved, do they just go to the website? Is that the best way? Um, I think the best way call? is just to give us a call. Okay. Um, and they can either reach out to me or Mary. Um, and really, uh, I just want to kind of add, this training is coming up quite quickly. We do have quite a number of people already signed up. I don't want anyone, if they are listening to this um, interview, go, oh, I want to do that. And they call me and I say, okay, we don't have enough room. Can you wait for the next one? I don't want anyone to feel deterred by that, but just be aware. Um, we, With the pandemic, we can only fit so many people in a room with social distancing. So we are limited to 20 in our space. Um, so, but I don't want that discourage anyone to come and reach out to us because we, with our services and covering the area that we do, sometimes we don't have a life story writer maybe in the offshoot areas like maybe Wakefield area or, or, or wherever. 
that it's available. Um, and a great thing that I want to add, too, as well for volunteers, is that we have a pool of volunteers, and we do that on purpose because we, uh, we understand a majority of our volunteers are retirees. They don't want to punch a clock. <laughs> they want to be able to have the freedom. So if someone's not available that's fine. We'll just move on to the next person on the list. And I just always like to expel that fear that, oh, no, I'm letting you down if I can't do this. No one ever lets us down. Whatever gift of time they can give us, we're very appreciative of that. And the last thing I want to add is um, that our life story writing is really for our patients only. Um, once in a while, we do get calls about life story writing. Um, we do not offer that to the general public. Of course, we are um, specific in our, in our services to hospice. Yes, sorry, I should have made that clear at the outset as well. But yes, make the, I'll make sure that's very clear on the Death Walkers Guide to Life website okay. too. Thank so you. how many people are involved in the Life Story Writing Project at the moment, roughly? Oh, roughly, I think we might have uh, maybe about 18 or yeah, 20. In, yeah. in that pool. Yeah, yeah. We've, never, we've never had enough volunteers to, for, the, for the clinical staff to offer it to absolutely everybody. And on occasions I've had to say, please don't offer it to anyone because I don't have any free volunteers. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. So you can do with some more. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. Okay, great. Now, my very final question, which is going to be a bit of a surprise question for you because I didn't tell you about this before we jumped into the studio. But um, in every episode of Death Walker's Guide to Life, I ask my guests to nominate a song that they would like played at their funeral or their wake or the celebration of their life. And I want you to just think of the first song that pops into your head that you would think, oh, yeah, that, that song kind of sums up who I am and what I felt about the word. Mary's nodding. Have you got yeah. a song? Yes. Yeah, I, I'll, I've got a list of funeral songs, actually. But one of them is It's a Wonderful World by Louis Armstrong. Oh, yes. Oh. Beautiful. That is a. I'm sure that's in the top ten. Probably mm. that's a would be a very popular one. How about you, Kriska? Gosh, I don't know. I'm I'm like my dad. I'm I like to uh, lead with humor. So maybe the song "Closing Time." <laughs> I don't know if you know <laughs> that song. It's from like I think the 2000s, and it's just talking about the bar shutting and drink up your drink and leave. So maybe that might be my best song on my way out the door. Yeah. I don't know. I would like it to be a celebration. Um, not anything that would be sad or mm. reminisce, you know, yeah. so. Yeah, mm. great. Well, thank you very much, Mary and Kriska, for joining me on Death Walker's Guide to Life today in the studio. I really appreciate it. Thank, thank you, you for having you. us. Thank you for having us. You're listening to Death Walker's Guide to Life with Kerry Sunderland, and I've just been speaking with Kriska Gould and Mary Garner from Nelson Tasman Hospice. And now it's time for Death on Screen, and today I'd like to talk about the wonderful series of videos on the Tikahu Pairuri Oteoroa Hospice New Zealand website. The series comprises four two- to three-minute videos, each featuring the stories of various health professionals and support workers, including a music therapist called Karen, fundraiser and volunteer manager Simon, clinical services manager Leah, and of course a biographer called Anne, who does very similar work to the team of volunteer life story writers at Nelson Tasman Hospice, who we've heard more about today. So I'm just going to play a short excerpt of the video about Anne, the biographer. Everybody has a different story, and people say, oh, you know, I've just had an ordinary life. Well, nobody's had an ordinary life. And working for the hospice, the most important thing 
is having a good death. So there's laughter, there's sadness, but it's them speaking from their heart of the things that have touched them in their life. Very, very few people discuss their illness in their biography. Their biography is completely their life story and the good bits in it as well as the bad or sad bits in it. It's the patient's words. So when you read a biography, you should be able to you know, hear that loved one talking. You know, here they are facing the end of their lives and being bombarded with all the things that that involves for this hour, all they're doing is remembering the bits that they really want to share with you. They're really getting an awful lot out of telling you what's happened in their life. I mean, it's just a joy to see what a biography can do, what a biography can give back to a patient. You can watch all four videos at hospice.org.nz and I'll include the specific link on the Episode 8 webpage at deathwalkersguidetolife.com. The videos were produced for Hospice Awareness Week, which takes place in May each year. Please help spread the word and encourage your friends and family to support the wonderful work Hospice, those angels without wings, do in the community. Na mihi nui. We've come to the end of today's show. You've been listening to Deathwalker's Guide to Life with Kerry Sunderland. Find out more about the show and catch up on previous episodes at deathwalkersguidetolife.com. Once again, Kamihi, a big thank you to Tasman District Creative Community Scheme for supporting the show. Matiwa. See you next time. Fly away. The podcast you just listened to was a live recording of a radio show, first broadcast on Fresh FM, the top of the South's community access media station, with support from New Zealand On Air. The funding of Access Media makes these podcasts possible. To find similar programs by other community access media stations, go online to accessmedia.nz.